from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Everybody and welcome to episode one of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. My name is Stephen Spashnee, and we've got a great show prepared for you here in our cozy little pop culture clubhouse. I've got interviews with author, comic writer Mike Barron, and shoes singer-songwriter Jeff Murphy. We also have a Blanket Fort powwow with some of my friends and fellow music journalists. Plus, some great music, including an acoustic performance from Adam Marsland. So stick around for an exciting, action-packed episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! And now it's time for some music. Never said a single word to me 
That's something brand new from Spy Genius. That's called Shall I Show You in My Mirror? That's available courtesy of Big Stir Records. Before that, you heard This Love I Feel For You, which is by Ian McNabb. That's off his album Star Smile Strong. You can get that direct through Ian at www.ianmcnabb.com. And we started off that set with the classic Make Up Your Mind by David Quinton. It's available on Bullseye Records. That song was actually written for Stiv Bader's, but I prefer David Quinton's version. Mike Barron is an award-winning comic writer, journalist, author, and music fan. Best known as the co-creator of comic book characters Nexus and Badger, he's also written critically acclaimed stories for DC and Marvel characters like Batman, The Flash, The Green Lantern, and others. 
And as a writer for The Punisher, he co-created the character Micro, who was heavily featured in the first season of the Netflix TV series Marvel's The Punisher. These days, Mike Barron has settled comfortably into the role of an author and has already released a few novels with many more on their way this year. But don't think that he's abandoned the comic world. He recently collaborated with artist Barry McLean Jr. and created Q-Ball, a new comic about martial arts and espionage. Recently, I was able to catch up with Mike to discuss career, comics, and music. And here are some of the many highlights from that conversation. Now, first off, I'd like to give listeners a bit of history. Um, you've been an author, comic writer for quite some time. Can you fill us in briefly on your career to date? When I graduated from the University of Wisconsin, I moved to Boston. I started writing for newspapers there. I wrote for the Boston Phoenix, the Real Paper, the Globe, Fusion, Cream. Uh, I mostly covered uh, entertainment. I was music editor. I always wanted to write fiction. I moved back to Madison in 1977. I went to work for an insurance company. I met Steve Rude in 1981. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we cooked up Nexus, and we showed it to the boys at Capital City. Uh, that was Capital City Distribution was the second largest comic distributor in the world. They employed hundreds of people. They were worth millions and millions of dollars. And now there's only one. But that has nothing to do with our history. They published Nexus. Uh, and uh, then they published Badger. And on the strength of those two comics, I was invited to write for the majors uh, most notably, I, I wrote Punisher for Marvel. I wrote Flash and Dead Man for DC. I wrote uh, Star Wars for Dark Horse. And then about 10 years ago, I started writing novels. I don't know. I, one day I just woke up and, and I felt I'd write a novel. No, actually, I've been trying to write novels all my life. And, and they were mostly crap. And, and, and it just took me a long time to learn how to write a novel. When I did, I got it. And uh, I've been writing novels ever since. And this year, Liberty Island Press is releasing seven of my novels. Yeah, they've already released the first two, Biker and Sons of Privilege. And they're, they're both uh, in a series, uh, my Josh Pratt Biker series. It's called Bad Road Rising. That's what they call it, Bad Road Rising. But uh, I call it the Josh Pratt series. And it's about a reformed motorcycle hoodlum who goes to prison. He finds God. He gets out. He straightens his life around. And uh, tries to do good works, and he also gets a private investigator's license, and he just ends up in the most awful situations. These stories are grim, my friends, and yet (laughs) there is humor in all of them. Do you remember the exact moment when you decided that you wanted to be a writer? You know, musicians of a certain age, you know, they're going to cite something like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan as their introduction to rock and roll. But I think that being an author, artist, or comic writer, that magic moment is probably far more personal and unique for each person. Well, and it was always in the back of my mind, ever since I picked up a John D. McDonald novel of Travis McGee, probably the greatest influence on my writing. I devoured all those Travis McGee novels, and Josh Pratt is my attempt to create a modern Travis McGee. It was always in the back of my mind, uh, but I wish I had gotten serious about it earlier because I messed around a lot. You know, it took me 30 years to become an adult, and uh, <laughs> and I'd probably be a lot further down the road if I'd taken it seriously earlier. But I'm happy with where I am now because finally my skills have caught up with my imagination. 
You're best known for creating characters like Badger, Nexus, Whack Job, and others, but you've also written for some existing legendary characters for DC, Marvel, Valiant, and Dark Horse. What was it like working for these companies that obviously influenced you? Well, it was fine. It was kind of loosey-goosey back in those days. Everything wasn't so tightly controlled. And you'd go up to Marvel and everybody would say hello and they'd take you out to lunch. And uh, and the same with DC. DC was very friendly. Jeanette mm-hmm. Kahn was publisher then. I had great editors, Archie Goodwin, Denny O'Neill, Mike Gold. Uh, and I have to mention Carl Potts at Marvel, who's a great editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was fine. You know, I got no complaints. Except you know, after about three years on Punisher, Carl got kicked upstairs and was replaced by another editor. And this guy was a gimmick guy. He wanted – and up until then, I treated it as just a straight crime story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, want, he wanted superheroes and supervillains and, and uh, X-Men and Doc Doom and – and and stuff and he had gimmicks like uh the brain the the plain brown wrapper covered punisher because the story was too horrific to show the actual cover which of course it wasn't mm-hmm. the, the gimmick was the plain brown wrapper cover itself and then the wedding cake cover he had he commissioned a bunch of photographers one thing he did is he commissioned a whole bunch of covers from mike golden and I ended up writing stories to fit Mike's illustrations, which was fine, I, you know, because you can't do better than a Mike Golden cover. I know that you've written new stories for existing characters like Batman, The Punisher, The Flash, Green Lantern. But what was it like seeing your character, Microchip, taken over by other authors? Well, you know, except for one run of Garth Ennis' Punisher, which I liked a lot, I haven't... Uh, read what what came after my you know when i was young i devoured these comics like jelly beans but my tastes have changed i hardly read any comics anymore just the ones that friends give me or or for some reason catch my eye but mostly i i read novels and and uh, history books as an author do you need a completely different mindset in writing novels as opposed to uh, comic writing I'd assume that there are a lot more limitations in writing for panels as opposed to pages. And which do you find more satisfying and appealing creatively? Uh, well, I find them both satisfying, equally satisfying, but in different ways. A, a novel is, is a literary experience, uh, which is different than, than a visual experience. Uh, and, and in a novel, if, if, if you're good, you, you can erase the barrier completely between uh, the reader and the story so that you forget that you're holding something that was punched out on a printing press in your hands and, and you're absorbing these words. No, uh, in the hands of a good author, you're experiencing that story as the protagonist experiences it. Mm-hmm. And but in, but in a comic, in my opinion, no matter how great that comic is, and you can derive great pleasure from the story and the writing and the pictures, uh, you're always conscious that, that it's comics. So there's that little barrier that exists between you and the story. Uh, maybe it just came on, on to me as, as I got, got older because uh, uh, I, I remember entering into some stories so completely, but it, it was because that the words and pictures meshed so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, there's comics have unique strengths and unique weaknesses. And, of course, their greatest strength is uh, they can – 
make the most outlandish behavior and scenes and powers seem seem logical. You will mm -hmm. believe a man can fly. Mm -hmm. uh, and before movie special effects caught up with that, comics were the only medium where you would accept that, that a guy was super-powered and had X-ray vision uh, and all that stuff. But but the limitation the comics have, as I mentioned before, is, is your constant knowledge that it's a work of artifice. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, especially horror, and people love horror comics, but comics are at the worst medium for horror because uh, uh, you're, the, the worst picture you can draw uh, doesn't compare to the imagination and terror that occurs in your mind True. Uh, in the hands of a different type of storyteller, either cinema or books, mm -hmm. where, that, where it can tap into uh, your fear of the unknown because the comic attempts to make the unknown known and you can't really do that. And now you have this new project called Q-Ball. Yeah. Is this set for release anytime soon? We're waiting for our copies from, from China. They'll be here any day. They're available from me, the artist, Barry. And, and you can buy them from us at shows. Plus, we have a lot of subscribers. Uh, hopefully, we're going to get picked up by another publisher. But I can't ask them to do that until our copies come in. And then I'm going to send them the first issue. But the first issue is done, and we're very proud of it. <laughs> We'll be back with more Mike Barron right after this musical interlude from The Weaklings.
That is brand new music from the Weaklings. That's called In the Moment, and that's available everywhere digitally, March 2nd, 2018. And now, back to my interview with author Mike Barron. It seems that superhero movies are universally accepted by the masses, of course, and but collecting comics still has negative connotations as if it was something for kids and, and socially awkward adults. Do you think that's changing? Well, I think it's going to die off with the comics. I hate to say it, but it certainly appears to me that comics are struggling to survive for any number of reasons. I think the greatest blame belongs to video games. As young people today uh, would rather lose themselves in a very realistic world mm -hmm. where they themselves are actors than lose themselves in a comic book, which does seem old-fashioned to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, I, you probably get a great deal more value for your money out of a video game, which can provide endless hours of entertainment, than out of a 4 or $5 comic, which you can read in 15 or 20 minutes. Now, the joy of the comic uh, is that a certain magic happens between the paper and the eye, uh, in comic book art that doesn't occur in any other medium. We take joy in the art itself. But uh, uh, again, I don't see how these people who only read comics on the Internet can experience that. They look at a picture, yeah, it's beautiful, and then you click on the next page, but the picture doesn't stay with you. Uh, my favorite comics, for the art at least, I, I leaf through them backwards and forwards. I look at this panel. I marvel at that drawing. I say, wow, you know, you really nailed it. Look at the mood there. Mm -hmm. But all right, aside from video games, also the distribution system is, is horribly messed up. And while I noticed that a lot of people sort of look down upon those people who collect comics, within a 15-mile radius of where I live... There's four CD shops, yet there's nine comic shops. And when I go into a comic shop, it's always busy. But when I go into a CD store, I might be the only person there. Well, that's good for comics, and it's, it's bad for records. I, I, I'm fighting tooth and nail against the disappearance of physical media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so are a lot of people. This is a huge discussion in the power pop community, as I'm sure you're aware. Yeah. Should we make a CD or are we just going to have downloadable shit? Well, yeah. you always make a CD, always, 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 mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. And here's two of the most important. One, your your band goes to give a performance. The audience loves you. Are you give them a download code? <laughs> no, they're standing there with their wallets and they want to buy the CD. The second is it's nice to have a physical product you can hold in your hand. You see the faces of the people who produce the music. You read the lyrics. You file it away. There's a collector's urge in a lot of people. I've spent a lot of time in comic shops uh, lately, and they kind of remind me of the record stores of the 70s and 80s. You know, there there tends to be this sort of sense of community. As a music fan and a comic fan... Do you also see the similarities between these two collector communities? There is a slight uh, uh, overlap. As well as being an author, comic writer, comic fan, you're also a big fan of music. Now, do you remember the your first introduction to music and, and what do you prefer to collect now? Well, I started listening to uh, jazz when I was a kid in South Dakota. I don't know why. One day I decided to buy a record... I went to uh, Woolworths or whatever it was, and they had a big record rack. And uh, I liked the cover to Solo Monk, so I bought that. That was mm -hmm. my first record. 
Uh, and then some friends of mine were listening to Dave Brubeck. So I started to get into jazz. Uh, and of course, uh, I love rock and roll too. The first concert I ever saw was Eric Burden and the Animals with Herman's Hermits and Freddie and the Dreamers. Uh, and I started writing about music in college because uh, uh, there was this uh, underground newspaper. And I went over there one day, and there were all these records leaning. So I said, holy shit, man, where'd you get all those records? And he says, oh, the record companies keep sending them to me. Hey, listen, if you write about them, you can have them. So I said, well, yeah. And so I gathered them up. That's how I started writing about music. And then when I moved to Boston, as I said, I was music editor for Boston Phoenix. And I went out night after night to listen to bands, talk to musicians. I was always very interested in, in music, uh, especially jazz at that time. But over time, after I moved back to Madison, I, I really began to love power pop, which is, as you know, is, is, is upbeat, uh, uh, highly rhythmic, uh, uh, pop music uh, uh, after the style, the Beatles, uh, the Beach Boys, the Raspberries, uh, Cheap Trick. These are all power pop bands, and everybody likes that sort of thing. But they have, but the the extent of power pop, how far it goes, and how many bands are are producing it these days is astonishing. Uh, it's been one of the greatest years for pop music in history, and I say that every year, and every year it's true. But you'd never know it by listening to the traditional music press. Rolling Stone is clueless. Uh, uh, Spin is clueless. Uh, these all these uh, big American music deals, the Grammys, uh, you know that that uh, this corporate music that they push, it doesn't do it for me. But the music is out there. You just have to look for it. Now you've told me in the past that you've had interactions with some. Uh, Famous musicians. Is there any story that you can share with me legally? Uh, you know, the, the stories of the ugly encounters stand out the most. <laughs> but I, was, I did have lunch with Freddie Mercury and Brian May, and they were both uh, gentlemen. Wow. And Yeah, and, and I... I and I was shocked because because Freddie had teeth like the cow catcher on a train, and I said, "Well, why did you why did you name your band Queen?" And he stuck his pinky in his mouth and he said, "Oh, I don't know. It was just the most awful name we could think of." <laughs> well, thank you very much for stopping by the blanket fort, Mike. Uh, I was wondering, uh, are there any parting words you'd like to share with uh, the listeners? If you go to Amazon, you type my name, and I have my own author's page. Uh, and these books, these books will make your head explode. Other than that, I, my advice to everyone is to always carry a hat. Welcome to the Wood Room here at the Blanket Fort. Acoustic, intimate, and just for you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to introduce singer-songwriter-producer Adam Marsland. I called you 
That's Adam Marsland with an acoustic version of the Cockeyed Ghost Classic at the bookstore. You're listening to Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Just an honest guy with an honest heart, but you're honestly tearing it. 
That is In My World right here on Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. That's by a band called Chalice. That's off the Overflow CD, which is essentially a retrospective 1974 to 1977. That is a fairly new release on Zero Hour Records, and you may want to check that out. And right before that, you heard the Pop Dogs with a track called Honest Guy from the album Cool Cats for Pop Dogs. Welcome to the Blanket Fort Powwow. This is the segment where I gather together a group of friends to discuss topics that we really care about. For this inaugural powwow, I am joined by music journalist and author John Borak from Orange County, California. DJ Mike Lidskin is from here in Sacramento. Musician Brad Beard is from Florida. British music journalist Don Valentine is from Britishland. Rex and Christina from the Armoires and Big Stir Records are based in L.A. And we also have Texas Titan Victor Irwin, curator of Spider Pop Records. And we are all joined together by the magic of Skype. Today I'd like to discuss streaming. Now, my position against streaming is far less harsh today than it used to be because I do realize that people are using streaming in order to help them make purchasing decisions. But I also know a lot of people who have replaced purchasing product, such as CDs, LPs, or even digital downloads. They've replaced it with streaming. Essentially, there are many people who no longer see the worth in music. They feel entitled to listen to this music for free. And ultimately, this has had a negative effect on the music business. It hurts the artist financially. It hurts record and CD stores. And ultimately, it cheapens the art of music. But now that I've expressed my thoughts and opinions on streaming, I'd like to hear what you guys have to say. And I'm going to start with you, Don Valentine. Well, I'm a bit like you with streaming. Um, some of it is held up by the place that I live, really, where um, the internet connection isn't great. And so streaming can be a bit poor and the sound quality a bit poor. On the piracy level, I think less. I mean, since digital, there's always been a problem with piracy. But what I probably don't like about streaming, and I don't use it myself, is that it, it's stopping people listening to full albums. Um, I, I think there's too much individual tracks. People don't listen to albums anymore. And it's difficult for the artists to, to really earn anything out of streaming. So I'm quite anti-streaming. But, but there is the point that a lot of people say do look at bands that we recommend and go and check them out on Spotify. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but generally, you know, if, you know, if I summed it up, my main one would be I have such a... Um, a poor internet connection at times that, that streaming doesn't really work for me. Thanks, Don. Let's go to John Borak. I just want to hear Don say Spotify again, because that was really <laughs> cool. Agreed. <laughs> you know, uh, streaming is good and bad, I guess. I mean, it's good in that it introduces people to the music they might not have heard, but it's bad if, of course, artists don't get paid and, um, sales go down and record stores close and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it's sort of a necessary evil now. I'm glad I don't actually know anyone who doesn't own or buy physical product. Um, as someone who reviews music, you know, I, when somebody says, hey, can I send you a link to my stream? I'll say, well, yeah, but I, I'd rather have a CD because it's a lot of work and you're sort of chained to some sort of 
device if you need to um, listen to something, you know, and you don't have if you don't have an internet connection or a good one, like Don says. I don't know. Streaming can be good, but it's also, I think, more of a hassle at times than uh, than it should be. Uh, Mike, what about you? Well, interestingly enough, although I'm in radio, I really don't subscribe to any of the streaming services, but I'm old school enough to see where if the streaming service was set up like radio where you could explore music and do music discovery, be turned on to new bands and not whole albums at a time, that's fine. But I agree with John. I don't like the fact that bands aren't getting paid. Um, you know, and that's that's one thing. And then the other thing, I interviewed somebody yesterday who was kind of taken aback that I didn't recognize that one of her songs was a cover tune. And that's because the person that's provided me the stuff provided me digital media only. If I had a physical CD with liner notes, I might have been clued into that fact. Uh, Rex and Christina, what are your thoughts on streaming? It's really difficult to sell music. Um, <laughs> so if if it's easy to just go to YouTube and download any or listen to any song whenever you want to, or um, any of the other platforms like SoundCloud or whatever they are, it's impossible to sell records. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've sort of given up on making any money <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um, we're just trying to get the music out there. And not only for us, but for our, you know, similar artists that we work with, that we play with, that we adore their music and just want it out there. So... I think, um, uh, I mean, we all have to kind of cop to the fact that our demographic is maybe not the most tech savvy and we still consume music in a way that we were uh, uh, raised on. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we, we romanticize that a little bit, but it also works because that's the way it's been. Um, and it's definitely appropriate for for people that were influenced by albums and loved having the giant LP covers <laughs> look at. We... We dreamed of doing that. We dreamed of being in a band so that that thing could exist. Um, and the sequencing is is equally as important. Yeah, I mean, to I the think, experience. Yeah, I think. I think that that we'll probably get into this with some of the other questions, but that definitely is something that rubs us the wrong way. That tracks are just loose, floating around out there without context, and uh, that informationally, as both of you guys were just saying, and also just not being part of an overall work. Yeah, all you have to do is Google somebody, and their songs come up. What platform it's on, and you can just listen to them. You mm. don't have to buy anything. Which, which you know, we're, we're all guilty of for convenience because we want to check something out before we go whole hog into it. Instant gratification. Instant gratification, that entitlement thing that was being spoken of. But it, it hurts the artists. Um, uh, there's no question about that. And we just sit around and talk about it until we hit a brick wall. Yeah, and then we get a sledgehammer. <laughs> Brad, what are your thoughts on streaming? You know, uh, the, the thing I agree on is, yeah, they, they have to find a different paradigm in order for people to get paid. But then again, that's always been an issue. I mean, radio didn't pay the artists. It sold more of the product. But And uh, I had discussions with Michael Carpenter about this because he's a big Spotify guy and does a lot with streaming. And he's, if you kind of view it as promotion to, to get your name out there, that's a great thing. I find a lot of great music and a lot of stuff I bought. And I'm a tech guy, so I jump onto every kind of platform. Mm -hmm. I do think I do think physical product is going to end up being more kind of a specialty kind of thing, especially as they look kind of more as technology changes and we go more to the blockchain and, and ways that there can be some creativity, things like Steemit that are happening, which you get paid for being able to produce content. You can download it. You can buy things. 
I think it's a, a changing environment. I think it's beautiful from the fact that, you know, we, we're, we're pop geeks. We're, we're collectors. There, there's records yeah. that the press that there's 500 of. And maybe 500 people heard that. Whereas, like, I put out some little thing that I do on my own and thousands of people hear it that wouldn't have heard it if they just had to buy the seven inch, you know, pressing it in the 90s. So there's really good and bad with it. If it's for the fact to expose your art and your art to touch someone and hopefully affect someone's life, it's beautiful. It's across the world and anyone can hear it and relatively cheap to get it done as opposed to pressing records. They have to find a way to make sure that people are getting paid and people are getting paid. I mean, the, the, the record companies are getting paid from the streaming services. Victor, like Rex and Christina, you are a label owner. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> I, I think it's the devil. <laughs> you sequenced this order of speakers perfectly, Spaz. <laughs> so, so Alan Petchy is actually the owner of the label, and he really likes um, Spotify, uh -huh. and he likes it because he wants the music to be heard. And uh, I think he's unlike most record label owners in that respect, that the, the making money aspect of it doesn't bother him as much uh, it, it, relative to just getting the music heard. Yeah. Um, personally, I think that the, the whole thing is part of our disposable, you know, instant gratification society. And uh, I miss the days where when I was younger, I'd come home with a new album and l put it on and lay in bed and open it up and read every jot and tittle on it, you know? Um, mm -hmm. it, it's it, Music was a lot more important to youth <clears throat> when I was young. <clears throat> Than it is now. I mean, we had three television stations, two if you, right. you know, later on added the UHF. We didn't have video games. And if you were in the house, you were listening to music or you were watching a little black and white TV with your parents in the living room. And if you weren't in the house, you were, you know, playing ball or whatever, you know. And, and, and so it's different today. Uh, I miss it. Back in late 1977, at the tender age of 14, I discovered British trio The Jam, and they changed my whole way of listening to and processing music. For the next few years, I devoted all of my time seeking out any band that played similar short, sharp, hook-filled pop music. This is the music that some people now call punk, new wave, mod, or power pop. I didn't care what anybody called it. As long as it had a great melody and great harmonies, I was in. In 1979, I purchased an album called Present Tense by a band by the name of Shoes. The album melted my brain. The lush harmonies, whispered vocals, gorgeous hooks, and warm production blew me away. But within a year, that album became the soundtrack to my first real heartbreak. I was 16, and I had just broken up with my first girlfriend, and I'd never felt pain quite like that before. Now, as great as I thought Present Tense was before that, it suddenly took on a whole new life and a whole new meaning. Here were guys that knew exactly how it felt to be in love and then to lose that love. And as much as I was passionate about music before, this was the album that I really connected with during this part of my life. It was the album that guided me through the landmines of heartache and it got me to the other side safely. I can't thank the members of Shoes enough for that. So, 
my inner geek boy decided to contact Shoes member Jeff Murphy to discuss the present tense album and other Shoes shenanigans during this period in their career. And now, the highlights from that conversation. first came to prominence with the 1977 release of Black Vinyl Shoes. You had already recorded a few albums worth of material before that, but Black Vinyl Shoes was different. It was a huge musical step forward from the previous private pressings. Were you surprised by the reaction that you got to the album? Uh, yeah, we were. You know, when we came, we were kind of, we've always been in our own little world. Um, coming from a small town in Illinois, we were about halfway between Chicago and Milwaukee, and there was no music scene. It was a dry town. There was no bars to see bands. Um, we had to travel, you know, for about a half hour to get to the nearest music venue, which was great because we would see a lot of the Chicago talent come through, Cheap Trick and, all, and, and bands that were of the day were coming through uh, Pez Band and things like that. People were out playing in clubs, so we would travel uh, to go see those bands. But um, there really wasn't much close to us to, to inspire us. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, we, um, when, when Black Vinyl Shoes got, started getting attention in uh, 77 and 78, um, we were really just ecstatic about the fact that it, it, the press took to it. And what that did then was once we got our deal with Elektra, um, and, uh, we, we spent quite a while in early 79, uh, searching for someone to, to co-produce the album with. Um, we had sort of established the fact that, that we had the ability to, to record and produce things on our own and, and, and arrange things, um, which was to tell you the truth, probably our strongest suit at the time, but we also were very, um, green and um, scared you know we always assumed there was things that we didn't know um, there was something that that a secret or a magic button that that uh, professional musicians and and engineers and producers <laughs> knew about that we didn't so when we when we started on on uh, we finally uh, settled on mike stone as as the um the person that we wanted to co-produce with because we got along with him he had a great sense of humor um and uh, some of the people that we had contacted weren't available. We, we had talked about using Roy Baker, which is probably in hindsight was, was probably good that he wasn't because of the fact that he had um, uh, just finished the second Cars record, and that was huge and would have probably looked like it was coattailing yeah. on their success. Mm-hmm. So um, um, he suggested uh, working in England, which is where he was from, and um, the studio itself was... Um, an old hunting lodge um, that they had converted into a studio and which sounded great to us. We were, we wanted to be far enough away from the record label that they couldn't get in and, and metal. You know, we heard these horror stories about 
um, you know, A&R people showing up and trying to rewrite your lyrics and, you know, telling you what they think they think you should do. So um, when we finished the album and came back, yeah, we were really shocked that, I mean, we were, of course, proud of it and very happy with it. Um, I don't know that Mike Stone completely understood what we were about. But, and we had several several production um, disagreements as we went along. Mixing, you know, he would say, there's one way to mix it and this is it. And we're thinking, no, this is art. There's no one way to do anything, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so, uh, uh, and like he didn't, he didn't understand 12 string guitars. He didn't get the point. Uh-huh. Um, so, so we had to kind of lobby on our behalf and we, we had demoed the entire album in its entirety. Uh, and then some before we went to, to record. So, and, and because of the fact that we don't read or write music, the only way we could remember what we had done was to reference back to the demo and say, what was the, wasn't there a harmony there? Wasn't there another guitar part we had added? we would have to put the demo on to, to, to listen and say, Oh yeah, that's right. That's what, that's what it was. Um, which drove him, drove him crazy. He, he didn't like that at all. He, he thought, forget about the demo, just react to this. We said, well, we've constructed these songs very carefully and that's what we're trying to recreate. Had some time to sit and think things through. There's not really much left that I can do And when we finished it, he was surprised, he said. He didn't think the songs were going to fit together. He said, recording them separately, you know, one by one, you, you don't get a feel for how these things fit together. But once it was done, he got it. You know, he, 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 he understood. And um, when we came back to the States and played it for the record company, their reaction was, was um, a double-edged sword. It was great. They were, they were over the top. Uh, excited about it and we we had a meeting with the chairman of the board at the time uh for warner brothers who who said uh we estimate this album will sell between three and four million copies which to us was like kind of like the 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 king's blessing um uh, unfortunately what we realized after the fact was now he established a, a litmus test for it oh you know and and if it if it didn't sell that, it was going to be considered a disappointment. And we didn't we didn't get that. We were just you know we were just happy. I mean hell, if we'd have sold fifty thousand, we were happy. Mm-hmm. Um, we just loved making the record. What was going through your minds during the recording of this thing? Because you went from recording an album in your living room to being flown to the UK, professional studio, major label. What was that excitement like? It was it was kind of muted to start to tell you the truth. What had happened was, um, and we talked talk about this. I think Mary Donnelly talked about it in the the bio that she wrote about us, and I also touched upon it in the book that I had written. What happened was just before we we left for England at the end of May in 1979, uh, we were flying out to L.A. fairly frequently uh, between the time we signed the deal in April, and in preparation for for you know, the recording. Mm-hmm. One was to go out and do a photo session. 
And uh, one of the flights was scheduled on Memorial Day weekend of uh, 1979, flying out of Chicago. Um, and it was Friday. It was a Friday flight. So we were, we were kind of giddy thinking, hey, they don't, they're not thinking here because they're flying us out on Friday. Everything's closed until Tuesday because it's Memorial Day. Yeah. So we'll have, uh, you know, a three-day paid vacation on their, on their dime. Um, out in LA, sunny, you know, the land of milk and honey. <laughs> it was warm and beautiful. Yeah. And so, um, uh, we were ready to go bags packed, you know, um, things were moving pretty quickly once we had decided on the producer. Um, and Thursday night, uh, so the flight was, I believe around one thirty on Friday, uh, Thursday night, they called and they said, look, oh, you know, there's no one going to be in the office until Tuesday. So we've canceled your flights and we're going to reschedule then after that we're, we were, really upset with them and it 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 kind of you know we were really grumbling about it and, and just complaining well that was american 191 uh the flight out of o'hare that lost its engine um and crashed and killed everybody on board that was the flight we were we had been booked on that they had canceled wow. so that really shook everybody up because of the fact that number one uh the, the new york office didn't know that the flight had been changed um, we, we, I don't remember where we were at the time, but we were kind of scrambling to contact our, our parents and relatives to let them know that the flight had been canceled. Cause you know, we had told them all we were going on Friday, leaving on Friday. So we didn't want to show up on a death list and freak somebody out. Yeah. Um, so after the fact, once everything got sorted out and we flew back, we finally got a flight and we flew to, to LA, they grounded all the DC tens while we were in England. And we read about it and that was really sobering then. Cause then you started thinking, Oh man, all these planes were time bombs just waiting for this to happen based on, you know, this, this flaw that they had discovered. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was kind of a sobering thing. And we spent the first two weeks when we got into England, um, waiting for our equipment to clear customs and doing interviews and things like that. So we didn't get right into recording right away, which was really, just made us, it made us nervous you know we we were we enjoyed sightseeing a bit and going around but man we were we wanted to get to work studio nuts and we love being in the studio we just couldn't wait to get started we stayed in london for the first two weeks in in um uh in uh, trafalgar square um uh, the royal horse oh, was royal horse guards hotel and um <clears throat> pardon me we um we were just looking forward to getting started so so it was and then and then you know you're scared you're apprehensive you know you're thinking you're going to be unmasked for being the the, the interlopers that you are, you know, that you've, you, that we've kind of, you know, this is the test now. This is now, this is the big time. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, we're not in the basement. We can't take forever to do things. Like we, like, you know, when you have your own studio, you can kind of work until you get it the way you want it. Um, we realized there that, okay, now it's about execution. We, we've kind of sussed out what it is that we want it to play. So, so now it's, it's execution and we're just not, that's never been that important to us. Um, you know, it's kind of like, and again, not to put ourselves on this playing on this, on this playing field, but a lot of the people that we respected the most that we were influenced by were not great technicians. They were not great players. It didn't matter to us how good of a guitar player, um, you know, George Harrison might've been or, or, um, you know, or Bob Dylan or, or, or Neil Young. It wasn't about their, their virtuosity. It was about what they wrote and what they ended up playing. Yeah. So to us, you know, we, we, we just enjoyed making the records and it didn't matter if, Oh, it took us five takes to get it rather than doing it on the first take. Um, we weren't particularly spontaneous because we, we, we think it all out first and we memorize it and we don't, because we can't read or write music. We don't think, Oh, this is in C so I can play this scale here or I can go there. It's all based on memory. Yeah. And you know, and, and, you know, we don't have the best members in the world. So, um, you know, so it was, it was, it was always a challenge to kind of get through a take in one pass. It was a lot of punching in and, and, um, and things like that, which we were born as a band. We were born at the perfect time. The technology was, was, uh, ripe for that type of production process. And, um, even things like click tracks, which we had just started to toy with and people hated them and things like that. Now, Everyone plays to Pro Tools. There's there's a grid. There's a click. There's there's a, it gives them a a reference point when yeah. you're editing. Yeah, have that grid, you know. And we were we hadn't prior to this. We had not played to a click track. Um, but during um, I don't miss you, which was kind of a weird song. Um, again, Skip was not a a, um, a, a great drummer in terms of his virtuosity and we weren't great players but what we found ways to make things interesting and what we had done on the drum uh uh, let's say the drum pattern for for i don't miss you is we had a uh, roland re201 which is called a space echo and it's Uh a tape delay that you can control the speed which which makes the 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 echoes either happen faster or, or longer after the initial attack. And there's a series of not just one playback head, but there were, I think, four or five playback heads in that unit. So you can choose a combination of heads so that you get not just one repeat, but different repeats at different times. So Skip played a relatively simple beat in I Don't Miss You, and then we ran it through this space echo and created this kind of syncopated beat that felt like he was doing a lot more than he was really doing.
kind of like the edge did with guitar in the early U2 stuff, yeah. you know, where he always had that slap echo on his guitar. It felt like he was really playing really quickly, but he wasn't. It was just the echo that gave slap echo that gave that. Yeah. Well, the problem is we didn't take that with us into England. We did not take that particular piece of gear to England. So when it came time to do it, he had to play out without having that echo fed back to him so that he could play off of it. And it was making him crazy. He just could not get it right. And we ended up driving to town, sending one of the girls from the, uh, from the staff into the town at a local music store and buying a little metronome, little God awful sounding click. Yeah. And we, put a microphone on it and fed it through his headphones at just ear bursting levels. And, and John was in doing bass with him. Uh, and they, they were both just, they would have these tremendous headaches afterwards. Cause it was just so loud, this click so that they would stay on it while they were playing. And I remember Skip got so irritated. He took his drumsticks at one point threw them across the room. And it was just that self frustration of trying to accomplish what we knew we wanted, what we, what we wanted him to do. He knew what he wanted to do and he was just having a hard time and it was nerves and all that, you know? So that, that was, that was probably the most dramatic moment of the whole recording process. He eventually settled in. We got the, the track. It was still different than the demo because they did not have a Roland 201. So we had to try to emulate it with other digital units and it didn't have the same feel yeah. um our demo our, our demo has a, a much more syncopated feel to it um we, we 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 released the demos to those um um those songs on the cd double exposure and you can kind of hear the difference of what that what, what we had intended to do and what we ended up uh having um so that was that was uh you know, that, like I said, that was the most dramatic moment of the whole thing was really trying to get that nailed down. But then once we got Skip's drum tracks, you know, which took maybe a, a week, five days, a week, um, he was on vacation for the next two months. be able to finish their album in time will they reinvent the power pop wheel the answer to these and many other terrifying questions will be answered in the next episode of beach blanket fort bingo same spaz time same spaz channel well kids that's our show i'd like to thank our special guests for taking part in our series premiere you can visit Mike Barron at bloodyredbaron.net. Jeff Murphy in Shoes can be found on shoeswire.com. Thank you for stopping by Beach Blanket Fort Bingo, and I hope you enjoyed your visit. I'd like to remind you that it is up to us as fans and consumers to help keep the music and comic book industries alive. Support your local indie stores and support your favorite artists. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on... 
Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Original opening and closing theme music written by Teresa Cowles and performed by Teresa Cowles with Mike Schmidt. Original bumper theme music written and performed by Mike Schmidt. Blanket Fork Bingo is a Mark Goodson, Bill Todman production. Smell you later. Jeff Murphy will return in Beach Blanket Fort Bingo, episode 1.5, coming March 9th, 2018.